You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, I want to welcome you to another episode of Season 5. This is Managing Leadership Anxiety. We are all about helping people go from uh, spun up and tense to grounded and a calm presence, first in yourself and then in the people you lead, whether it's a team, a staff, or a family. And uh, season five, we've got plenty of episodes before us. We've got 65 or so previously recorded episodes where you can check out some guests and really learn what you can do to go from being spun up to grounded, to go from being anxious to a calm presence. The theory is pretty simple. It's not easy, but it is pretty simple. And that is that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, health can infect ill health. Somebody who's healthy and grounded and calm can walk into a spun-up situation, can walk into a toxic situation, can even walk into a hostile situation and be fully present to the people in the room and fully present to the God that's already there doing work. And so this podcast and also a book I wrote of the same name gives you language and tools so that you can kind of move from being a spun-up leader to a calm leader, from an anxious leader to a grounded leader. That's why I do this show. And uh, what I recommend you do is find a handful of people where you can discuss this. It's not enough just to listen to a podcast and it's not enough just to read a book. In fact, I can promise you if all you do is listen to this show and never talk about it, you're not going to change. If all you do is read my book or read someone else's book on this topic and never do something about it, never put it into practice, never grab a group and talk about it, never try it on, you won't change. And so I highly encourage you to grab a group of people you trust and just on a regular basis, weekly, every other week, monthly, sit down with them and try some of these things on. If I can help you with that in some kind of a group situation, uh, you can reach out by emailing Chris Willis at dc2.me. We'll also have her email in the show notes. I'd be honored to help you and your team, whether it's in group coaching or some kind of a custom seminar or webinar for your group. Uh, let us know. All right. Today, I've got a, a fantastic guest, uh, Scott Erickson, uh, also known as Scott the Painter. Uh, several years ago, I saw a painting of the cross. But instead of it just being made out of wood, Scott had filled the cross with all these powerful Old Testament images. And it really struck me and I bought the print and it's on my wall. And since then, I've been following Scott on Instagram and just love his provocative art. Scott is a fine artist. He's also a touring speaker. And certainly before COVID hit, he traveled and and did wonderful combinations of his art and speaking. He's also a spiritual director. And he's coming out with a book called Honest Advent in time for Christmas this year. I love talking to artists. I think in the Protestant tradition, you know, we gained a lot in Protestantism, but man, did we lose a lot. And I think one of the things we really lost was the high value of art. So I brought Scott on to talk about art, spiritual direction, what to do when you're stuck. We had a a wide-ranging conversation. Hope you enjoy. So, Scott, uh, you know, obviously you're a visual artist, but you also are a speaker and a writer, and you actually have a book coming out probably a month or two after we released this in September called Honest Advent. And just as I heard about um, your your passion there, I think we share the same concern with just how profoundly sanitized we've made 
Christmas and the preparation leading up to Christmas, you know, what comes to my mind is Jesus was born right before a a giant child slaughter. Um, There's all this light and darkness going on. Tell us a bit about Honest Advent, the book, and and what what uh, brought up to, what brought you up to that? Yeah, can I tell? I'm I'm a I'm a very story oriented person. So can I give a frame of reference? Uh, uh, I got invited to speak at this arts conference. It's put on by SIVA, which is Christians in Visual Arts. Great organization. Like them a lot. However, <laughs> however, but it was in <laughs> however. This is a few years ago. It was in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Calvin College. I was just invited to be on a panel. So I got to be there for the whole time. And I remember sitting in the audience and going, and I just, it was like lecturer after lecturer getting up and like reading like their paper that there is like art professor after art professor. And I just remember looking around going, this is an arts conference, right? (laughs) Like, where are all the weirdos? (laughs) Like, like, I was like, is somebody going to come up who looks like Doc Brown from Back to the Future and just like, hi, I made this stuff. Oh, here it is, you know, and like <laughs> go back to their closet. Because cause I like that is the community of kind of haunted creatives that I know. Yeah. And, it, it, and it felt like it, the conference was trying to prove so hard that it was like what they were doing was important that they – they lost kind of the like craziness of it. And this is a crazy journey. And so it was that experience that, and, and then I go, man, this is actually how I feel about church. I, I, I feel like church is, is trying so hard to prove that this is the real thing that it, that it neglects like it's craziness. It's absurdness. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of crazy people in churches, but like, um, when you, when you can view the Bible as like this moral code for appropriate manners, I don't know, whatever it, but I think if you read it, you're like, these stories are insane. These are like crazy stories that are happening to women and men throughout history who are trying to make sense of God working in their midst. And it, it causes them to make changes and transform and lose everything and, and, and move to different places and all that stuff. So that, I would say that moment was really informative of like how I approach, um, anything like with spirituality. Um, so when we got to, so what happened is like last election cycle, um, and we'll just leave like who you voted for or not there. But that year was like, a really insane campaigning year. It left us more divided than it together. Uh, there had been lots of school shootings. Syria was devastating, the civil war there. Uh, Zika virus, Flint water crisis, all of this stuff. And then it was like after the election happened, you went around to the stores and everything was decorated with Christmas. And uh, I just remember going, none of <laughs> none of this makes sense, you know? For one, you know, the just the non-religious like Santa and all the, you know, like, does he have a technological sleigh? Well, it's just like, what is this? And then even the Christian uh, worship of it, it just seems so sanitized and, and like it had nothing to do with the world we were living in. And my prayer, like not even like, hey, I'm going to talk about this on social media. Like, I just was like, 
are you even in our midst, Jesus? Is like Christmas something, is Christmas something that happened one time or is it something that is still happening today? How is Christ in our midst now? How is the incarnate Christ coming into our midst? And what, I'm not a woman, but I'm married to one and I've witnessed three pregnancies close up and three births close up. And I started meditating on what it meant for God, the invisible mystery, to become a visible, tangible thing, person that we could touch and interact with. And the risk of incarnation, not only the risk of like childbirth, but the risk of like, because once you become visible, you, you, can, be, you can be rejected. Yeah. Um, once you become visible, you can be touched. You can be abused. You can be mocked. You can be loved. Like the risk of incarnation is just being seen by everyone. Hmm. And, and as I started, uh, meditating on that, it was really just like, what does this say about a God that's willing to be this vulnerable with us? That, that God is actually participating in vulnerability, which vulnerability is the way that we connect to each other. You, you can go into a room and like talk about all your accolades and that does its thing for a while. But really when you connect with people is when you, you start to talk about how you all limp with, by, with something, you know, what in life has like really, um, humbled you. Yeah. And that's where we connect. And I see God, part- I see that in Jesus participating in that. And so I started like, I, for me, I was just as a designer artist, I was like, I need to, I need to come up with other imagery. So for my own spiritual practice, I just started doing these drawings, uh, these illustrations of pregnant women and, you know, with some nipples and nudity and things like that, not in an objectifying way, just in going, uh, I witnessed my naked pregnant wife just being like, "Mm, my back hurts so bad. It hit something like I was really surprised how many women reached out to me and were just like, I've never seen anything like this. And I never knew that I needed it or I wanted it. Like, I feel so honored in my biology, which, which really reflects this kind of like the female body has been diminished by Western and most, you know, just male oriented, uh, religion that views it as like, oh, it's bloody. got to go outside the camp. It's disgusting. It's, uh, uh, it's too sexually stimulating, you know? So their own, like, their own body and their experience has been marginalized spiritually or like, or kind of like, don't talk about it. Let's keep it hidden. The whole meditation of Christ's incarnation is like God comes through the biology of a woman is connected to the biology of a human being. And that kind of grittiness and honesty really like has saved uh, Christmas, (laughs) saved Christmas for me. Yeah. Kirk Cameron did that. uh, This did, uh, it, uh, it, it did, it did. And it, um, and so I've, I've been do I've been kind of building a catalog for the last three years. And then last, this last Christmas, I was like, I have enough for a book. So I approached some publishers and they, and Zondervan was like, let's do it. So, um, that's what's coming out. It's called honest advent and it's 25 images and meditations. And, you know, like each meditation is like a thousand words. So I had to take like my little quick Instagram and go, what is this? you know, and expand it. And it, you know, the book is about 25,000 words and it's, it was a great process to kind of view like, and, and, uh, some of the great feedback is people have been like, 
it is a Christmas Advent book, but it could be a book for all year round. It's just it's using hmm. it's using these few scriptures that we have of Christ's incarnation, and I mean all the way from Luke and Matthew, but also like there's Philippians, and we go to Isaiah, and and kind of like what is this? How is God? God is participating in human vulnerability, and so what is? And so we're meditating on God, but it also helps us see our own vulnerability as an avenue to know and participate with the divine. And that is what the, that's what's going on in that book. It sounds really necessary. I, I, um, I love art, but I, I don't think I'm an aficionado and I don't always know why I love it. Yeah. I, I think your art to me, it's like a combination of provocative and arresting. Yeah. Like it definitely makes me stop. And then uh, how would you describe your art to people? Well, I, I say, uh, I mean, really awesome. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, um, so the, de- the, the decisions and the practice, I guess, in my art making, cause I could do, I'm not actually very good at it, but I could do like landscape paintings, but why I've decided to, I think of myself as kind of a symbologist. So I'm making this like created symbolism, this, these elements, these, you know, I'm not like abstracted, like taking objects right. and maybe juxtaposing them in a way that doesn't happen or showing something. And then I'm adding, and, and what I'm trying to do is give a visual vocabulary for people's spiritual journeys. Yeah. So, cause when we use these words like faith or doubt or hope or love, and we talk about these stories and these interactions, I want to create a kind of like an image that can, that you could anchor to and go, I think when I when we use this word, this is kind of what we're alluding to. I <laughs> admittingly have not figured out a concise way to say it. I do think it's like, it's almost like, like a newspaper comic. It, it's, you know, it's just like an illustration that has a then an aspect to it that you're like, it's just something else is in there. It's like weird or you're putting something together and then it goes, oh, that, that speaks to something deep in me. Yeah, your genre is... To me, at least, immediately recognizable. If I'm on Instagram or I've uh, actually owned one of your prints before I knew who you were, I just remember seeing the print thinking, oh, I love this thing and I bought it and it's on the wall. Yeah. But as I followed you for a while, it's like, oh, that's definitely a a Scott the Painter print. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, I do want to I do want to admire your dedication to your craft that you would change your last name to the painter. (laughs) That's like that. I know. That's a serious dedication. It's um, becoming that. Some people don't even know my last name. Like I've met a they're like, You're it's Erickson, right? It's Scott the Painter. That's all I know you by. Mr. The Painter? Yeah. I'm okay with that. I think at a certain time in history, you were just your last name was your occupation. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, you're old school. Bob the Builder or <laughs> Steve the Stone Stonemason. Yeah, something like that, you know. And and my last name being Cuss uh opens up more possibilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, your professional wordsmith is... <laughs> yes, that's right. As Mark Twain once famously said, uh, sometimes profanity provides relief not even offered to prayer. Yeah. Oh, uh, my goodness. I digress. That's great. That's great. But yeah, I, I, I would say the common experience I have with your work is it forces me to stop and to yeah. keep looking at the print or the, the whatever you've put for us because yeah. you have clearly packed a lot of meaning. It, it is intended to make us pause so I, mm-hmm. I just want to pivot because you're also a spiritual director. Yeah. And uh, I would say when I've um, submitted to spiritual direction, pausing and reflection is about what most spiritual directors have me do. 
Tell us a little bit, when somebody comes to you for spiritual direction, what are you trying to help them experience or encounter? Oh, that's a great question. This is my, this metaphor helps me a lot, even when I'm doing direction. So if you imagined a triangle uh, and three points are the three people involved. So say like in marriage counseling, um, if you're the counselor and then you have these two other people you're not counseling that person or that person. You're counseling the line between them. Your, your job is to focus on the conversation that's happening between this couple. That's what you're counseling. And spiritual direction is the same way in this triad model. You have the directee and then you have the triune God. And you're focused not on the directee or God. I mean, you are, but what you're focused on is that conversation that's happening between them. You're listening, you're holding space. And you're always pointing back to that conversation because what we believe is that's the fundamental aspect of your whole life is that conversation that's happening. What we're doing is a director is listening and then always pointing towards like, where is that happening or where have we lost it? Or what is the, why, you know, how are we not engaging it and how can we engage that more? And then discerning all aspects of your life with it. It's not just like, What's your prayer life? Although prayer life is a, is, a, is a massively important part of any spiritual life. And we could talk about what prayer means. But, you know, I started meeting with a director years ago because I was trying to figure out some vocational moves. And I just, I didn't, I wasn't clear. And so I, I, my director, Morris, journeyed with me. And direction isn't necessarily just for professional religious people. It can be, like, I'm, I'm doing direction with a cinematographer right now. But mostly I'm directing with people who are, ministers because one of my teachers dave wilkinson said this where he said jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit for there's the kingdom of heaven and he's like if you're a professional religious person where do you get to be poor in spirit where do you get to go i don't believe this (laughs) right now or or i'm having a hard time and everybody's spiritual journey is going to involve days and weeks and periods where you go this doesn't make sense or I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. And but when your job is to be a leader and mortgages and staff salaries are on the line, it, you can't just get up and be like my sermon today is I didn't believe any of this this week. Thank you. Yeah. Uh and because one people hang their spiritual doubts onto their leaders go carry this for me. I don't want to deal with it. So they're not allowed to. And it's what it, it it's what inevitably like runs people out of ministry. It's just a really weird and hard job to constantly be like, like you just have to disassociate an aspect of yourself with your, you just can't be whole. You can't be a whole person. You can't be whole. So a spiritual director is like a safe spot to just kind of work that stuff out (laughs) and be honest and talk honestly. So. Yeah, you bring up an interesting pressure because like your your Honest Advent book coming out, your your number one invitation is to vulnerability. Yeah. (laughs) And then you're saying... If you're a spiritual leader, though, you have to sift, you have to curate your vulnerability. Yeah. Right. That's the challenge. And, and you know, most of most of my listeners are faith leaders. That's probably the main majority. I'm a, I'm a lead pastor. Yeah. I, I don't, as of now, we're recording in mid-August. I don't know a single lead pastor who would say they're doing well right now. I mean, I'm sure they're out there. Yeah. But just COVID and all the challenges. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the challenge I face is like, I've had lifelong doubt. My, I've, I've been a pastor for 25 years. I've been a lead pastor 15. I knew that when I became a lead pastor, meaning I would be the primary communicator 
for our congregation. Yeah. If I didn't share my doubt with our people, I'd become a fraud. Yeah, that's great. And so I, sometimes I wonder if I've tested the limits of that uh, because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I know what it's like to step on a stage and not believe what I'm about to say. And it's the worst. It just, it does something inside. Yeah. What What do you think uh, faith leaders can do when they're having their own crisis of faith or they're not experiencing what they believe? It'd be helpful if you've seen this movie, but we can metaphor it. There's a movie called The Truman Show sure. with Jim Carrey. Yeah. The premise the premise is like this young, this kid, this baby, since the baby was raised in this fabricated world that was a television show. And so he starts to figure out that it's not true. And at the end, so spoiler alert, he takes this boat out to sea and the boat eventually runs into the wall. And he gets off the boat, walks along this wall and finds a door. And then the creator of the show is like, don't leave, don't leave. And he's like, what do you say? Good, good morning, good, ev- good afternoon and good evening or something, good night, yeah, you know, something right. like that and he leaves. And what I think doubt is, is doubt is your boat just crashed into the wall. That's, that's how I see doubt. That's, that's how I give grace to my doubt is go, the reason you, it, like in, in, in Kurt Thompson's book, uh, The Soul of Shame. Soul of Shame, yeah. Which is a great book. Yeah. He just says, doubt is a relational uh, response. It's, it means that you've reached a spot where relationally you don't know if you can trust this uh, person anymore. And so uh, I just, I, I like to give grace to my doubt and go, <laughs> You just, you just ran into a wall. You just ran into the wall of what you thought to know to be everything. And there is a doorway to go into a more expansive world. And that's uncomfortable because it's unknown. But you're just, you're just hitting that wall. And what you're hitting is like, I thought I knew what this was. And I don't think God is malevolent. Like, oh, no, don't hit the wall. Don't come out here. You'll be at this yeah. point. I think, I think God's saying like, you've constructed this to a point. There's, there's much, much more. And we're gonna and we're gonna go into much much more, but it's gonna be a, a transformational journey for you. So, yeah. I, like, yeah, especially right now with what is church gonna turn into? How many are gonna last? What is the fabric of religious society gonna be after all this? I don't know. What we do know is that it's God's yeah. church. We'll let it do what it wants to do. <laughs> to do. And God really, it, just as God had shepherded us to this spot of leadership so god will take care of us through it uh i don't know if that means like that means vocational change or i'm not sure um i i just keep pointing back to that jesus says your father in heaven knows everything you need before you ask him so let's start with that prayer before we get into like give us this day our daily bread you know the lord's prayer isn't isn't just a, a checklist of things it's a it's a it's an invitation to live into a reality that already is because it's predicated by your father in heaven already knows. So that's where we have to bring the conversation is what does it mean to, what does it mean to be already known? I often in my own places of anxiety and struggle, I just, even this morning, I, I awakened early and I went walking through my neighborhood to pray and it, yeah, what I really had to come back to was, especially in this time has been like, do you know, am I, do I know that, you know, and I have to practice that. And then, and then some other like specific things I needed to, to get into. But I found that this season is just like, you already know, you already know is kind of my only prayer Mm. (laughs) right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's really good. I want to shift gears and just talk a little bit about uh, visual arts in the church. It, It feels to me in the Protestant tradition, the tradition you and I both in, it's almost as if uh, Jesus was born, lived, uh, died, raised from the dead, 
time passed and then somewhere around 1977, <laughs> the church was born. Like, it seems like the modern church, we have about a 30-year working history and then this almost 2,000-year gap. Yeah. And so we've bypassed all the visual arts, the iconography, like that our Eastern yeah. sisters and brothers have taught us. Yeah. Um, and so now we're in an era where, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think we have redeemed music in the church. Not that we ever really lost it, but there's there's so much musical production happening. Yeah. But yeah. What what vision do you see for for visual arts in the church? And just your 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 listeners are very intelligent. For those who are intelligent but haven't, you know, are, aren't fresh on their Reformation history. I mean, what kind of where like Protestantism lost its image culture was during the Reformation, creating of the printing press. And there's many wonderful things about the Catholic tradition, but there were some pretty like bloated and gross things that that leaders were like, let's get away from this. And so what it happened is it just the pendulum swung instead of like kind of maybe like, let's take a lot of the good things. It just kind of went all the way and was like, we have a Bible now. We don't need, we don't need a priest. We don't, you know, we don't need these things. Let's just get rid of it. We have words. Let's just get rid of everything else. We just need the words. Yeah. So it's based out of that. Um, I, I also think what happened is because we had the words is that, um, and this is informed. I lived in France for a year after high school and I lived like three blocks from a cathedral in Strasbourg, France. And I went there every day and it, transforming me because I could tell a lot of things about it. It was created for an illiterate culture who didn't have their own Bibles. So the whole thing is created to communicate the story of God. Yeah. And I think what's happened is because of the Reformation, because of Bible printing, is that we no longer needed to make our buildings as a teacher because we just make our buildings for a teacher. Mm. So when you go into most sacred spaces, the building isn't trying to teach you anything. The building is trying to facilitate a teacher. So we don't have art on the walls. We have sound panels. We don't, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's good. And it's not a, and it's not a, it's not a dig. It's just what happened. It's just what evolved. And I think what we're, but we've all, uh, if you've traveled and you've gone to a wonderful like space or church or monument, you know, the architecture is meant to do something to you. And I'm not saying we should build cathedrals again because that would cost like a half a billion dollars. But I do think like, how could we go, how does this space transform us? I mean, in essence, the Eucharist is doing that. Our gathering together is doing that. I mean, like there are elements of gathering together that are transformative. So then it's like, well, what kind of stories or things would we, would we image or show so that when we walked in, even if nobody had a mic on and the, the show hadn't started yet, it still could be a teacher. So that that's kind of like where I think what happened and why we're at where we're at. But I definitely have seen that there is this like growing desire for this, this kind of visual aspect. I used to live paint a lot versus... Dead oh, paint. yeah. Like during a sermon kind of deal with during the service? Yeah. The racing painting. Yeah. Um, and I'm very... I haven't seen anybody like me, which as an Enneagram 4 makes me delighted. But like, just mean, I've seen a lot of like worship painting and stuff and it's very expressive and abstract and stuff. My stuff's like very like design oriented, sharp lines and objects and things. And, uh, and I'm really boring. I just stand there and make it. But, uh, you don't, I don't dance and paint and splatter. 
Do you take a a, a worship banner? No. <laughs> do you, I do you have, release? I a have tam- tambourines taped to my elbows. So they, okay, that's that's successful. <laughs> um, uh, I used. I remember starting at this church and just started painting. And this is what I think: whenever you're bringing something new or that hasn't been part of your spiritually forming practice, is you have to overcome the neat wall. Uh, there's like three untouchables of a church service, which is preaching, music, and giving offering, and everything else is special. You know, <laughs> we have a special guest, we have a special, we have it's extra. And when when I first started painting at this church in this community, people would be like, "That was really neat. Thank you for thank you for sharing your gifts. That's really special. That's neat." And then it'd be like week six, week eight, that people would come up to me and go, "What what happened?" Like that really touched me. It, even people would be like, I, I stopped listening to this sermon. I just was like, and I was really involved in what was happening and I became prayerful. And what, what is happening is like, all of a sudden this has becoming like a, a, a an avenue for spiritual formation, just like music, just like uh, testimony, just like scripture reading, just like sermon, you know, all of that. And so when we overcome that neat wall, then we can go, oh, this could be an aspect of spiritually forming just like these other things. So I think when bringing something new in, you have to kind of guide the community and go, this actually can form us. Here's how it does it. Um, and then it can be like a part, become a part of the culture. Uh, I think why it hasn't been done very well is because really there's not a lot of people to s- steward it very well. Like if music's pretty standard, but if you just week after week had awful music, somebody at an amateurist, somebody at my t- sometime go, what if we just didn't sing, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. And so often when we have art in communities, it feels very amateurish and stuff and, and, and bad theology and stuff. And so yeah. I think people go, we don't really need that. So, but when it's done well and successfully and thought through and really spirit led, I think people go, wow, that's a component where wish we could have as a part of our rhythms. So, yeah. I think it's a fascinating challenge to figure out how the church can cultivate thousands of artists so there's hundreds of good ones. Yeah. <laughs> our, yes. Our, our, church, our churches have hundreds of thousands of bad musicians, so there's tens of thousands of good musicians. And whether you, whether <laughs> yeah. you like the genre or not, that's fine. But That's fine. That, that is a challenge. I, it, it's, I, I love how you talked about the cathedral in France. I, my family had an amazing opportunity to go to Italy and my kids were younger and I forced them to go to these basilicas. Yeah. And of course they didn't wake up saying, please let me go to a basilica. But we were in <laughs> uh, Venice uh-huh. and we went to, we went to a mass at St. Mark's yeah. and uh, it's supposedly the bones of the gospel writer Mark uh-huh. are actually there, Yeah, which really as a Bible nerd just really did it for me. So off we go. And my kids are bored before everything starts. And to make it worse, uh, the, the service is in Italian. Yep. And the priest, and I've I've had plenty of profound experiences under Catholic, you know, yeah. under the Catholic Church. But yeah. this guy phoned it in, like he couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't have. He's obviously he's in a tourist town. Mm-hmm. He's sick of tourists coming and infecting his church, and he's phoning it in. Yeah. So I kept my kids entertained by making them spot Bible stories all through the walls. Yeah. You know, I was like, hey, see if you can find John the Baptist. And they look around and it really was a remarkable experience to be immersed in art in a building. I, I love what you said about the building used to teach us and now the building facilitates a human teacher. But I also came away thinking, 
what you said, the half a billion dollars. How would I? So, so yeah. our church, we went from a portable high school to building our own building, and yeah. all we could afford was a prefabricated steel building with yeah. a nice skin on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but it doesn't have to be stained glass and no. Michelangelo. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And in fact, just down the road in Dallas, Texas, are some crazy churches with like massive aquariums and stuff. And I just don't know if that's like the best way to like spend your money. What? what I'm sorry. What's the aquarium for in the church? It's something like some verse from the Bible. It's like uh, Dallas, just in Texas, Texas Christian culture is just, you know, it's, it probably cost them like $2 million to build this aquarium. But they're like, this is. It's gonna make us filled with it's awe. Make us yeah, usually, really, uh, yeah. It's gonna really. It's gonna just like get people from that church to come over to our church. I don't know. You know, I don't want to. Like, if we can't be holy, we should at least be weird. Yeah, I don't know what the solution is. I uh, that group I mentioned, Siva, they started about forty years ago, and what they're they have like collections of art that you can rent or bring in. So you can bring in like a whole series of paintings on the on the on Good Friday, like about. Uh, the crucifixion or something or about resurrection. So they, yeah. they facilitate like usable art shows, which I think is really helpful. I personally have been trying to put together like sets of art shows that are easily downloadable and printable. And then you can put them up on your walls for a season. I have like some about yeah. of the cross, some on prayer about hearing the voice of God, spiritual practices. I often tell people like, where do, cause people are like, where do we start? And I just go, what, what are the stories you want to remember? Like what, yeah. how is like, what, prayers have been answered what prayers haven't been answered have you had any miraculous things have you how have you seen god work and then what would it look like to just make a visual ebenezer of that in some way it could just be photographs it could just seriously just be writing the story out i think because the whole thing is what's great about the cathedral is you're you're walking what it's trying to do is to make you go i'm entering into a the story of God that's been happening throughout human history. I am not, I am not left out of that story. My favorite Bible teaching or like teaching prompt is to go. The only reason we really tell these stories anymore is because they didn't just happen back then. They're happening right now. Yeah. And so when I see a painting of like, you know, Jesus healing a blind man, I'm like, that is a very specific story it's, Jesus is still helping us to see. And there's still moments in our lives where we're like, I didn't see it that way. And now I can see. And I also have like a son who has a degenerative eye disease. And so like seeing is, you know, it's a touch point for vulnerability there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. so, to, so to help, and this is where we get into like, what is architecture supposed to do and space supposed to do? I think, I think the thing is to go, how do we help people see that they're a part of the story that's been always happening and they're still a part of it too. And then how, and then, you know, taste and preference is going to come into it. It could be abstract. It could be photographs. It could be whatever. Yeah. But I think the, I think the foundational thing is to, is to really go like, we're, we're a part of this larger story. Um, how do, how do we help remember that when we come in? Because we all have lives and things. And some of us just like get our kids into Sunday school and we're having our first breath of the day, you know, like <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot going on. That's right. Just, yeah. Getting to the building back in the good old days when you used to go to a building it yeah. itself, <laughs> is its own, its own challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
So Scott, um, the, the, you know, I ask, I generally ask five questions of every guest and each season I do switch up the questions because some of my listeners have been hearing the same questions, you know, for 60 guests or so. Yeah. So I've got some fresh questions uh, that actually I'm going to try a couple of them. You're the first one I'm going to attempt them on. Okay. So if this doesn't work, <laughs> it's my fault. All right. The gauntlet of five questions. Here's the first one. Sometimes uh, we can be the last to know when we're not okay. Who in your life knows before you know? I mean, always my wife. I mean, I just like, I could never be a spy. <laughs> I wear everything. I wear all my emotions on the outside. <laughs> but she's, uh, yeah, she's pretty poignant. I'm going, you're not okay. But if I took it out of that spousal relationship... I, I, I probably have like a, a couple of good friends who could, who could do that too. But it's, it's, it's in this context, like I don't see a lot of my friends all the time. So yeah, mostly, right. mostly I've just been like hunkered with my family. Um, so I would just say my wife right now, she gets it. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you aware of what she notices? What signals you're giving when you're anxious? Um, yeah, I get pretty, uh, I, my language and demeanor gets very like hopeless like I just, okay. I just, I, I'll say things like, "This, this is never going to work out," or you know, Doom "I'm never, never going to get there." Yeah, when you start talking in absolutes, like this will never, you know, that's when you've closed the door of possibilities. That's always there. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, some of the work we do uh, in this field is we help people understand the generational traits they've inherited from parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and how they impact how you show up. Yeah. Uh, Would you be willing to name one trait that you have inherited that's an asset and then maybe one that's a liability in your life? From my, like, familial tradition, like my parents? Yeah. Yep. Uh, One that's an asset is uh, hospitality. My parents... And my aunts and uncles and my grandparents always have, there's always a place for quote unquote, the stranger out at the door, at the table. So, uh, our holidays were always, uh, marked with like some visiting family. My dad and my, my aunt grew up in Africa in Cameroon. So, uh, because they were missionary kids. So my aunt always would have, when this is in Seattle, would always have like a, she would always find like a, somebody who was like a student from Cameroon or some part of West Africa and like kind of take care of them and, and build a relationship. And so they would always like them and their family would always be over. So that my wife, that is instilled in me. Like there's always like a, a full table is the best table. Then, uh, probably something that, so there's that. And then something that I inherited that's not good is, uh, explosive anger is probably the one <laughs> not so I'm really if I'm really honest like yeah I didn't I didn't have a uh, a calm and collected I mean my dad my dad has is pretty great and then he's just like you know feels things a lot and so then when anger happens it's very explosive and I unfortunately have like inherited that way of responding to things so I'm working on breathing and calming down and not doing yeah but we all yeah. we all have right on yeah, yeah i mean to say to say i don't have like anger it would be a lie so yeah okay um i'm interested in people's earliest memories yeah and how they inform us 
Would you be willing to share your earliest memory that you can think of? Oh, my earliest memory? Yeah. Well, when we get back, this this is actually the fear that's been happening to me is I feel like I'm just forgetting my whole life. Yeah. When people would, like remember their like fourth grade friends and they know their first and last names, I'm like, what? How do you how do you even remember you that? that? Yeah. Uh, my earliest memories is in uh, I I grew up my first six years in Fresno, California. So I remember I can't tell which one is which. I remember going to this like preschool at this church. I remember a birthday party in the in our backyard, and I remember being in the backyard when an earthquake happened and going inside and being like, "What was that?" And my mom was like, "I think that was an earthquake." She was like washing the dishes or something like that. Yeah, yeah, just like it. Fresno's really hot. I just remember like heat and this backyard and just kind of this house. And yeah, and there there may be no answer to this question, but is there any meaning you've made from that in particular? And if not, it's no problem. Life life shifts around. I don't know. I don't know. Hey, by the way, the the memory issue. I'll just let you know as a. Um, as a dad of teenagers, it's real. It's your kid's fault that you can't remember your fourth grade friend's names. It's just you're not getting enough sleep. Is is all it is. It'll come back. As oh, that's good. I yeah. yeah, it's so weird because I'm I'm growing as like a speaker and a doing these like performance like these ninety minute performance pieces and all my heroes right. m- basically just mine their whole life of stories and I'm like. I I'm always like my life is so boring, which is not true. I just yeah. like need to do these memory exercises to like go back and be like. And I yeah. I think actually, if you one of the things I heard, side note for all of you is uh is actually if you draw like say you try to like draw out your house, your childhood house. Yeah. Draw everybody's rooms like just just like a diagram, like a like a construction diagram, because like a lot of our memories are are um uh tied into space and geography and stuff and so then go what happened what do you remember about that room what do you remember happening in this room what do you remember about this room and do that to your school do that to your camp do that to you know and that's the way to like help oh yeah yeah that street we used to do that um yeah so that's right yeah actually and i've I've done some study in the nature of memory and it's really about how you file your memories and your ability to go to the filing cabinet so that's a great exercise the one you mentioned yeah uh, it's a great exercise because it's all in there. It's yeah. just, it's tucked in my life. It's just tucked behind the Duran Duran. <laughs> like I still know every word of the song, the reflex, and I have to get through that to get to my, I mean, third yeah, just, you don't want to get rid of it. You just want to go through it. Cause that's, that's a great, that's a great memory to have. I know for yeah, me, I, it's, I don't me, mind me uh, Lewis songs. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't mind sacrificing the occasional Duran Duran, but in excess, I will not yeah. let go of because they're from the motherland. Oh, I distinctly remember my Walkman growing up and I only had a small collection of tapes, but I had two in excess tapes and I kick and I think just the self-titled one. It was black. Yeah. Yeah. And so great. Yeah, I am going to, wait, I'm going to listen to in excess today. There's so many good songs. It's always the right (laughs) choice. You know, Dallas Willard says the will of God is to always do the next right thing. (laughs) And one of the next right things is always to listen to NXS. Always to listen to NXS. That's cool. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, two questions to go. Um, okay, two questions to go. Got land away. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think a lot of Christians, if they're honest, they would say there's a gap between what I believe about God and what I experience from God. Mm. Uh, in my life, it would be the love of God. Yeah. I believe God loves me, and it's hard for me to experience it. Yeah, yeah. What, what would be a gap in your life? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Like, God doesn't work outside of our brains in our biology. So sometimes I'm just like, am I just making all this up? Like, is, am I just making a story? Because what human beings do is make narratives about things. So am I just making a narrative that gives me comfort in the world? Right. And I give grace to that. I mean, I think, I think one of the best spiritual practices you can embrace is to go, your life will have paradoxical experiences. Like you will, you will be full of faith and full of doubt. You will be a believer and an unbeliever and, uh, and you will feel those or experience those at the same time sometimes. And to go, they're not, they seemingly are opposing truths but the thing about a paradox is you you don't try to solve one or the other you go into the mystery of them both and so um some some of my deepest desires are like i really just want to like see it today and experience it today i want to hear your voice and then also be okay with like god's silence as well yeah i want to have like an overwhelming stimulating uh, emotion of love. And, um, and yet I also know that just as a married person, like a lot of times love is just like the choice to do it. So, uh, yeah, those are, those are the things. Um, I, I guess if, as I was wandering through all these paradoxes, I think some of the, uh, my deepest desires is to like hear the spirit and be filled with the spirit. Yeah. Okay. And that, and that has happened in a, I didn't grow up charismatic. I grew up Lutheran. Uh, so we like the Holy spirit was like a bad uncle. We don't talk about it. Right. Anymore. Yeah. Um, like doesn't come to the holidays, but, uh, then I became like a live painter who just got images. So it was this very, it, I wasn't like overwhelmed, like, Oh my goodness. But I, I just like, wow, where'd that image come from? That's what I should make. So it, it, I participated in it. It was different than what I thought it would be. Yeah. Oh, that's good. All right. Final question. Um, Final question. Which I, I have come to decide is actually the most important question in life. Um, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Mm. Wow. I wasn't ready for that one. When do I feel most completely loved? My, my wife and I will do this thing when we f- feel off or we just need it, that if you will just hug for 25 seconds... Because if you just hug, it's great. But if you allow yourself to remain there, like something physiologically happens to you, I think it takes 18 seconds at least. So we'll just like 30 seconds or a minute and just like hold each other. And that is, I can feel like all the guards come down on that. that. Just to go like, there's somebody holding me. I don't have to do anything. They're committed to holding me as just as much as I am to them. And that, that does it. Uh, I love that answer. Yeah. It, it reminds me of a story of a, a friend of mine. I, I won't name him. He is a public figure and he, he's a musician. He performs and he was backstage with a fellow musician who was sharing some pain Yeah, just back in the green room. Yeah. And my friend said to him, and they didn't know each other that well. And my friend just said to him, hey, this is going to be weird, but we're going to do it. I'm going to hold you for two minutes. Uh, yeah. And, 
Yeah. Um, it's, wow. You're going to want to you're going to want to pull away, but I'm not going to let you. And and basically, the guy's like, "Wait, what? No, we're, <laughs> we're not doing that." And then my friend like enveloped him in a big hug, and this guy just wept and wept oh, and wept. Wow. And there is something really powerful about an extended touch rather than just a quick and a casual. When I man, I love that story. When I was traveling, you know, when none of us are traveling, when I was traveling a lot and I'd be gone for four days speaking and performing, I'd find with like my friends or even just people I met who I felt safe with. And I would ask them, I'd be like, Do you, could I just hug you for 30 seconds? <laughs> Cause I would find myself, yeah. you get, you get, uh, you get deficient of touch. You know, you might yeah. like high five, touch people, be around people, but like that kind of like care. And I, I'm all about consent and all about right things but i do think also we've we don't have to like over sexualize every human relationship either right. <laughs> and be like that's we, right i can ask if i'm staying with my friends jonathan and kelly i can ask both jonathan in atlanta i can ask both of them can i just have like a hug from you and because i just yeah. i need that too you know and i yeah i love that story that's a great story because how many how many things that they he was confronting like yeah we don't do that backstage or whatever but, do, do, do that <laughs> all of that but yeah. like yeah just uh, the absolute disarming of it. Yeah. Scott, thanks so much. I, I was really looking forward to uh, chatting with you. We don't have enough artists on this show. As I was telling you before we recorded, you're my second artist. And yeah. man, I need to hear more from artists. You guys, are, <laughs> you're, a, you're a gift to us. So thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been great. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.